Thanks everyone for coming out. So, my actual environmental education started after after high school. I wanted to go to college, but I needed some money. My father is actually a, a geologist, and he put me in touch with somebody who I thought was a, a geologist. Actually, turned out to be a sadist. And what he said was, I can give you a job because you know you've just graduated from a government-run high school, so you have all the skills of a turnip. But I can send you up north, and you will be a gold panner and prospector. And I did that for about a year and a half, all told. And I spent the first winter in a tent. Now, who's gone the furthest north? It might be me. might be somebody else. I, I went so north that you know there's, the only water is your own tears, and there are no trees <laughs> at all. Uh, so, Nikina, does anyone, who's gone further north? Anyone else? Yellowknife. OK. Anyone else? Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Where is that? <laughs> Baffin Island. Baffin Island. Okay, okay. All right, so so I was up, like, you, 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 where the highway ends, you then, you take a plane, and then when the plane can't fly anymore, you burrow through the snow like a rat. It's just, you just went on and on. And we spent the winter in a tent. And at one point, we got snowed in. And... I grew up in cities my whole life, right? So I don't know much about, like, raw nature. You know, it's like, oh, it's raining, you know? And an umbrella, whatever, I go to But this was like, we had no food. And I was working up there with a couple of other guys. And it's really interesting how quickly your perspective can change from, like, comfortable civilization to, like, Lord of the Flies. Like, where you, you, you know, there was one guy who was working, he was pretty fat, right? And, and what happens is when you start to think about running out of food, he doesn't look fat anymore. What he looks is nicely marbled. <laughs> That's an important change in your, in your whole mindset. Like the, the skinny guys, they don't look skinny anymore. They look like lacking in nutritive value to you as a hunter predator about to turn on your own kind. And it, it was rough. You, 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 know, you didn't want to go to sleep because you had one eye open. Uh, clothes started to look like tasty wrappings, all that kind of stuff. So it was quite a change. And it's the first time I've ever really sort of faced, like, well, if the snow doesn't let up, we're, like, we're out of food. It also made me never want to be a smoker because the smokers ran out of cigarettes. And they were like out there in the blizzards, like digging through paths where we might have walked, they might have dropped a butt. So that's a, like, that's a better anti-smoking ad than anything else. I'd rather freeze to death than go for another five minutes without choking on a plant. Anyway. So, so that to me was like a really interesting, like me and nature without human comfort, human interventions, human technology. And then I was in, when I was, actually went to grad school here, as I mentioned, and I was curious at the time, and I went out to an environmentalist meeting, and they wanted to do it outside because they're environmentalists, right? <laughs> and the clouds were foreboding and, you know, distant rumble, and they all like, you know, we've we got to take this inside. And pardon me, I get this irrationality, epilepsy, when I hear stuff that doesn't make any sense. Like, Socrates had a nice quiet demon that would just whisper to him when stuff was irrational. I get like a, like a twitch, like a full body twitch. And so they're like, well, we've got to go inside because the weather might not be great for our environmentalist meeting. And I'm like, yes, you want shelter, right? Shelter! Because <laughs> they didn't, you know, human construction. All animals adjust their environment to serve their life and to protect their babies. You know, it's not like the beavers who make the dams are like, well, but the trees downstream, they might not have enough to drink, so we've got to balance this out. I mean, all animals adjust their environment, and we've adjusted this environment you put, you, outside today. It's completely horrible. We have adjusted our environment, and everybody who then says, well, we've got to live in nature and with nature and so on, 
Have you been to a dentist? Go to a dentist and they'll give you these mouthwashes and they'll clean your teeth and all that kills huge amounts of natural germs that otherwise are not going to be very friendly to your longevity. And when we had less technology and we were able to less shield ourselves from nature, you know, things didn't go very well, right? Anybody know what the life expectancy was around the time of the Roman Empire? 35? Now, average, it was in the early 20s. Now, this, of course, if you made it to your mid-20s, you were probably okay. A lot of that is infant mortality, but that counts. <laughs> Babies want to live too, right? And now, I mean, an average life expectancy of 21 or 22, like if you're not a Justin Bieber fan, you might think that's like a good cutoff. But for the rest of us, you know, we kind of want to blow past that and, and go to our old age as, as much as possible. Okay, two Justin Bieber fans. <laughs> Other people are like, who? Was he one of the Trudeaus? <laughs> so we, we want that shield against nature. There's a great old quote, which is sort of like if you're standing in the, in the woods looking at a beautiful meadow, listening to the crickets and the birds and the butterflies are wending their way through. You're seeing a massive sociopathic portrait of all the organisms in the world trying to kill each other and get laid. And that's very true, because that's what nature is all about. That's why we're at the top of the food chain, at least for now. Uh, because um, nature, if nature was like a human being, she'd get the death penalty. Because she's just, there's no trade, there's no negotiation, there's nothing like that. It's all just kill or be killed, eat or be eaten. Uh, there's no win-win negotiations in nature. Maybe there's some, I guess some, like the egrets that sit on the back of hippos and clean off their mites or something like that. But most of it is win-lose when it comes to resources. And we've gone above that, we've gone against nature, where we have a free market, where we can trade and, and it can be win-win negotiations and all of that. And that's great, but that's only because we've kept nature very much at bay. And a lot of technology is about keeping nature at bay, right? I'm looking at the amount of hair products in the front row here. And, you know, without that, I don't know what you'd be putting in there, right? But that's, that's important with me, it's sort of more of a polish, but with you guys, you got product. I'm not smoke around the front row, very, very important. So keeping nature at bay is really foundational to civilization. And I think that environmentalism is kind of like a luxury. Uh, that, that we have when nature is at a safe distance, when we can go and visit nature and see it at its most pretty and its most fun and its most uh, relaxing and all of that. But if you actually have to live there, it's really, really uh, difficult and, uh, and unpleasant. Like, if you ever had parents who come from the old country, you know, wherever the old country is, you know, as they get older, they tend to get kind of nostalgic about the old country. You know, oh, back in the old country we did this, or back in the old country everybody knew how to dance the right way or whatever it was. And, and yet, you know, they left the old country and then they ever had to go back and be like, oh, no, I want to stay here where it's, you know, cool. And so I think we get this nostalgia for nature because we've left it behind. We've, we've, we've controlled it. We've uh, bent it to our will, so to speak. We have things that keep nature uh, at bay. And I think that's a really, really important consideration to understand that uh, environmentalism is kind of a luxury. You know, like if you go to some person in India who's eking out some living on a quarter acre and you start talking about the beauties of nature. I mean, they just look at you like you're completely insane. Because the moment that human beings get to get away from nature, they do. Right? The whole industrial revolution was, hey, we've got three pounds of excess food in the city. You know, everyone goes storming after the city and leaves the country behind. Like at the turn of the century in America, 80% of people were involved in farming. Anybody know what it is now? 
yeah, three, two, depends on how you count it and so on. And without subsidies, there were like three guys producing all the food for America. But, I mean, as soon as people can get away from nature, they do. Um, who was the, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, the 20th century economist, he said that, because he grew up on a farm, and he said, once you've worked on a farm, nothing else is work. Which is true. If you've ever really worked in nature to sustain yourself, nothing else is work after that. So there's luxury <coughs> that we all have. So I think that there's a certain amount of, not exactly spoiled, but you know, like the champagne socialists, you know, I'm with the working classes because they drive me around. Um, <laughs> it's the same thing, I think, with environmentalism, that there's a certain amount of privilege and prestige that you need to have. Does anybody, I tried looking this up and I couldn't find anybody, it was not an exhaustive search. Anybody know any environmentalists who came from a farm? No, they're all like rich, whites, or middle class, or very privileged, grew up in cities and so on. And so their version of nature isn't like Hobbesian, it's like Ansel Adams, you know, like, it's so pretty. We want to maintain it, it's so beautiful. Yes, because it's a picture, and you're not in there with bugs flying up your nose and malaria invading your armpits, right? Because nature, frankly, is a bitch. I mean, she's homicidal. I mean, she kills human beings off like no tomorrow, like a third of the population of Europe died just in like 20 or 30 years of the Black Death. As you pointed out, malaria is just monstrous. To, to human beings. Nature is, is not a, a pretty uh, mistress. I think, you know, good, good to serve and all of that. So I think these are really important considerations to, to have around the question uh, of environmentalism. I think that another thing, any questions so far? Or are we just uh, <laughs> emptily entertaining if <laughs> no questions yet? Oh, you just stretching? Okay. So, <laughs> sorry, somebody. Please uh, <laughs> me now. Um, and I think, like another consideration as well, I think, you know, the old joke about that the environmental movement is like a watermelon, it's green on the outside and red on the inside. Like they used to say this about Nazis, uh, they called them beefsteaks because they were brown on the outside but red on the inside because they have so much in common with the socialists and communists. And I think that's an important consideration as well. It's, as society gets more successful, the, the, the question of why we need a monopoly of force at the center of society becomes sort of harder and harder to answer. One of the big problems that the Western governments have had is creating fear, scare, mongering, whatever, uh, since, especially since the end of the Cold War, but even since the advent of nuclear power. The advent of nuclear weapons and so on basically ended the possibility of these endless European wars that plagued the continent for thousands of years. Because... You know, when, when the leaders are like, oh, wait, the bomb can hit me? Wherever I am? Hey, blessed other peacemakers. <laughs> right? They, they change when they're not moving pawns around on a map, but when they're always exposed to their own martial dangers, they suddenly change their tune, and they are happy to, to negotiate. And so with the end of external enemies about to, to take over and so on, and, uh, you know, with the end of grinding poverty and with the end of disease that's going to ravage you and so on, I think that this constant need to invent reasons for government's existence, right? Like, you're probably aware that after the Second World War, poverty was declining, like, by a full percentage point every year. For the, uh, unprecedented in history, at least until China and Japan, sorry, China and India over the past, sort of, 20 years, where, like, hundreds of millions of people have climbed out of poverty. And to the point where even Bono is saying there's something about the free market that might be of value, not only because it made him very rich, as a singer-songwriter, but also because, you know, he was all around, let's get governments to do all this stuff, 
And while everyone's running around trying to get laws passed, the free market is actually lifting people out of poverty because there are people who talk and there are people who actually get things done. And activists usually are in the former, not the latter category. So I think what's happened is, why do we need government? It's a, government is a massive overhead. It's dangerous. It's problematic. It's you know, uh, full of uh, uh, nonsense and platitudes. It's manipulative. It's you know, all that kind of stuff. So the question I think that society, and often unconsciously, continually asks is, why the hell do we need this overhead? Why do we need all this stuff? And the environmental movement is fantastic for governments. And I think so that there is philosophical causes, but I think there's more philosophical purposes to, to the Green Movement, right? So who, examples as to how the Green Movement serves the state. That's the end of my talk, so you take it. No, just go ahead. Well, it serves the state because now the state can come in Right. In your life and control it. Right. And I was asking a question. This is what I don't understand. In my garden, all I do is half and slash back nature, right? Mm. Before it takes over my house. But there's this notion that the environment is so fragile. Yeah. And everyone believes it, even after they half and slash their own backyard. <laughs> There is this perception that nature is fragile, of course, but something has to be fragile for you to surrender your rights. Either peace has to be fragile, or the capacity of parents to educate their young has to be fragile. That's another uh, another area where bad science uh, is is a, a major a major factor. It, it, there are lots of examples of this. Take oil spills, for example. I mean, that's a wonderful area of investigation. Oil spills at sea. Well, well, I mean, the example of the uh, the spill uh, in Alaska of the, the Exxon Valdez, mm -hmm. and what happened there was. Um, they said, well, you know, the shoreline will probably never recover. And they spent, you know, you know, millions and millions of dollars trying to clean it up. Meanwhile, the part that they didn't try to clean up got cleaned up by bugs and birds and so forth. And it was, you know, within a couple of years, it was just fine. You know, you're uh, not doing well as a bureaucrat, but you can be replaced yeah. by an insect. And when, <laughs> that's not where you want to be in the hierarchy. And when there are major oil spills at sea, they discover the various kinds of fish that just love oil. Oil, you know, is edible. Uh, they fried and the fish population burgeoned <laughs> underneath the oil spills. Those are little things that we don't hear about. All we hear about is uh, how we need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars cleaning these things up because, after all, they're evil. And well, do you know that the, the amount of crop yields in Europe as a result of increased CO2 is skyrocketing? Yeah. It's fantastic for food production. Of course, you don't hear about that. I mean, any, even if global, I mean, it's a whole topic on global warming, but even if it were anthropogenic, even if it were catastrophic, Pretty significant scientific research has gone into the reality that if you wanted to solve the problem, it cost you about $6 billion. I think $4 trillion has been spent researching it, uh, but about $6, $6 billion you can fix it. You get 1,900 um, pilotless boats out of the ocean taking seawater and spraying it into the air. This creates what's called saltwater uh, cloud whitening. It makes the clouds more reflective, reflects the heat back into, the, uh, back into space that comes in from the sun and solves the whole problem. I've actually asked so many people if they've ever heard of the solution. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg talks about it uh, in a book called Coolant, and uh, nobody's ever heard about it because the whole point is there's not supposed to be a solution other than more power for the state, yes. right? So uh, even if this were, and of course, in the free market, they would try and solve the problem. They'd identify it objectively. They'd try to solve the problem as quickly as possible for as cheaply as possible, but that's not the way the state works. Yes, sir? If we're going to play this game, I, I, no, I mean, I like, I like the Let's description, go, yeah. oh, more power for the state. I mean, that, it's, it's nice and, and we're in this descriptive game, but maybe I think the problem is more, is more fundamentally ideological. Like, um, the, 
the progressive imagination or the, the, the managerialist fantasies of the 20th century. The middle class would achieve its destiny through social administration and engineering of the great machine that is civilization or the apparatuses of civil society. So the environmentalist movement plays to this fantasy that, well, the legitimate experts of which we can give you know, the resources in, in different places in society will fulfill their roles and we'll all kind of raise together. There's a, a greater human problem where we all take greater comfort maybe in seeding to power or giving power to the right you know, capacities and people. And you mean so there's some comfort in surrendering your rights? But if that were the case... No, not just that, yeah. that, that, there, that there are levers and that social administration is to be desired and so kind of a, a bit before that, oh, well, let's subject our, you know, give up rights to the state, yeah. that, that there are legitimate experts in the time of the benevolent, decentralized, you know, uh, benign actor is over and we need, we need experts and we need science with a capital S, you know, like these are ideological stopgaps or fillers, like, yeah. The climate, the climate movement serves high science, and the, and the priests like Al Gore like, go sell us like. Yeah, like they had to change it from global warming skeptic, because skeptic is good, right? To global warming denier, which puts you in the Holocaust category and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, yeah, that is natural. I mean, the, the, so many years ago, I was talking with a, a nuclear engineer, and he said we, we use almost no computers, as few computers as possible. We use like physical levers, knobs, cogs, chains, like ridiculous, right? There's some guy pedaling in the basement or something like that. <laughs> and the reason for that is computers are subject to bugs, errors, whatever, glitches, uh, EMPs or whatever. And so they really needed to have as much mechanical stuff, which is not going to fail or in the way that computers do. And, and that's because, of course, the problem is, is so huge if there's a, a nuclear power problem. And so when the consequences are catastrophic, your standards for excellence, your standards for proof, your standards for reliability have to be huge. Now, the reality, of course, is that, I mean, first of all, if the Kyoto Treaty were actually implemented in the way it never was, but if it was actually implemented and everyone followed their goals, do you know how much it would delay the increase in temperature over a century? Anyone know that lovely number? Five years. It would delay the increase in temperature projected by the IPCC, but by five years. Yeah, I think that's an exaggeration. But it's the I've seen are after 50 years, the um, the degree to which the climate would have cooled as a result of the Kyoto is 0.015 degrees, which is below the threshold that anybody could. You wouldn't be able to tell whether it had worked or not. Yeah. And that's that's the estimated improvement you get. And the cost of this, while only several trillion dollars. Well, and that, that translates into to millions of lives that, that yeah, otherwise well, yes. will survive. All long. that too, yeah. Yeah, so to me, if you're, if you're talking about something which may cost millions of lives, yeah. you have to have a high standard of proof, obviously. So I meant by saying that the environmentalist thinks that the environment is beyond price. Yeah, right. I just think of the, the biggest boon for government um, in regard to environmentalism is that like, if you take the phrase, um, if you can measure it, you can manage it. Well, you can't measure um, anthropogenic global warming right here. There's no, you know, I mean, you can't tell the weather out, you know, a couple of weeks, right? I mean, so, you know, I mean, if, like, they don't want to manage it. I mean, if you could measure it, that'd be bad for them because then they could say, okay, well, now we've done our job. No, but they but can measure it. Sorry to interrupt, but they, they can measure it, and the, the, the results are not as important and dramatic as they want. So do you know what they do? They have this magic thing called a multiplier. They just say, well, there's something in the atmosphere or something. It's going to multiply the effect, which is great. Try that in business with a business plan. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to sell that many, but if I turn this dial, you can see that number goes up, so give me a half a million dollars. Sorry, go ahead. Well, but what I'm saying uh, is not necessarily the, um, the uh, measuring the, uh, well, I'm sure I put this, measuring 
um, what is done or the, the efficacy of specific efforts rather than the actual results and what is the best outcome. So, I mean, let's say it gets colder in the future, then, you know, governments will simply say um, that, oh, we're not doing enough, we need to do more. Um, but, or, sorry, or that, you know, we, we need to keep doing what we're doing. Um, but if it gets warmer, they'll just say, you know, we're not doing enough, we have to do more, right? I mean, it's yeah. like a win. But there's no cost benefit in the law other than political yeah. calculations, right? So, yeah. I don't know, you remember in Al Gore's movie, he said the sea water could rise like six oh, meters yeah. or whatever? Yeah, sure. And hopefully that would drown out his speech. But, um, <laughs> but do you know that Tokyo, since the 1930s, has sunk under the sea by about five meters? They just deal with it. I mean, even if, even if all this is true, I mean, people just, we deal with it. I mean, yeah, like that is one from carts to boats, right? Yeah. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a hand way up in the back there. Uh, he was first. <laughs> oh, but, uh, but, uh, I was just going to say that uh, another uh, reason why I think uh, environmentalism helps the government is because uh, people who work in the government, they always like to take up the mantle of representing someone, or and they always take up these abstract things like you know the people. And uh, with declining voter rates now, uh, it's harder and harder to say I'm a representative of the people. But now I represent uh, the planet. Yeah. Now I who, who has no voice, yeah. no vote, and can never say no. I don't want you to be doing that. Well, and the problem with environmentalists, which is why whenever you drill them about their knowledge of the free market, it's woefully deficient. Because price, I mean, bossy pants always want to find some reason to tell people what to do. There's a whole class of people who just, they wake up in the morning, it's like, who can I, who can I boss? Who, who can I boss? Who can I, who can I tell what to do? Come on, come on, I need a fix, man. Give me, give me someone to boss. And they have to find someone to boss around. And the question is, well... You know, the whole point of the free market is nobody's in charge and nobody gets to boss anyone around. And you actually have to sell stuff to skeptical people. Laws are about imposing your will on resistant people. Because if nobody was skeptical or resistant, it would just happen anyway, right? You don't need laws for like people that like candy, because candy is, is fun and nice, right? So I think that uh, one of the things that, that happens is, is people constantly want to boss you around. And they need central planning to do that, right? And, and because... The, the question is, well, we're running out of resources, but the free market handles that perfectly. Everybody knows this, right? You can all probably chant it out, right? When something gets scarce, price goes up, and alternatives are sought. You don't need a central planner to deal with shrinking resources, right? And we're never going to run out of any particular resource. It's impossible, right? This is economist who's got this metaphor where he says, if you are in a big room and you've got all of these peanuts in shells, you will never, and you, you've got to eat all the peanuts, you will never, ever run out of peanuts. Why not? You'll never find the last peanut. Yeah, because you get more of this shells than you can, oh, forget it. You know, I <laughs> just go get a Beirut bar or something, so. Well, the, the label of this panel was uh, the philosophical roots of uh, environmentalism. And I was hoping something along of uh, exploring uh, uh, Marx's ideas and Rousseau's idea, and possibly even going back to Plato's, of these two fundamentally different concepts of the environment. One is that we are the children of nature, and the other one is that we are the masters of nature. The masters of nature's idea was very much prevalent of the 19th century. This is what uh, held, uh, helped us to the, to the industrialization. And what we see now is that more and more we see uh, the, the other side gaining ground that says that uh, we are just children of nature and we should be take care of this thing that sustains us and lives us. And it's a cultural war. 
So before we talk about the politics of uh, what, is the, uh, what is the right uh, uh, approach to deal with uh, the, uh, the environmentalist movement and why do they want to have the government, the real question to me is how do we deal with the cultural issue that us we are walking away from nature, as you pointed out, the moment you get into nature, there is nobody in the environmental movement who ever grew up in a farm. That's absolutely impossible. But how can we win the, uh, the, the cultural argument, the cultural war that we're supposed to be the masters of nature, we're supposed to manage it uh, in, in, in a way that is, that is probably best managed by the free market, as opposed to just dealing with the politics? I think, yeah, I mean, I'm a stay-at-home dad, and, you know, like anybody who's read stories about animals to children, I mean, it's not exactly like a National Geographic special when you talk about animals with children, right? They're all cuddly cute bunnies with little bow ties, and, you know, nothing ever gets eaten, and they all just drink sunlight and, and flowers and stuff like that. Uh, but the reality is that, so, so that to me, there's a kind of childlike element, a, a lack of maturity, a lack of growing up, growing out of that phase for a lot of people who end up in that kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The considerations of uh, mankind is sustained upon nature. This is an old religious idea, right? Which is that there's nature that was created by God, uh, and then we screwed it up, you know, with the apple and, and all of that. And we screwed it up, and now we're a stain upon nature, and this is original sin and so on. And I did a show with Redden recently where we talked about this, that if somebody can get you to feel bad for breathing, they own you. I mean, they own you, because then you've got to pay them to remove the sin, right? Whether it's a carbon tax or a donation in the confessional box, if you're just bad for breathing, then they own you. They make you feel bad just for breathing. This is a very old idea that human nature is somehow fallen and corrupt, and nature, whether it's a deity or, or the natural world around, is somehow good, and we fall and we're stained. And we need to pay people out of guilt, whether it's carbon taxes or confessional money. We have to pay people to absolve ourselves from the guilt of stealing, uh, stealing from whatever, nature or, or the poor or whatever. And the other thing I think that's important, too, uh, is that when we, we look at how we've controlled and, and affected the environment, it's so obviously beneficial to everyone that it's hard to make that, to make that into a sin. Uh, and people really do make it into a sin. You have to buy, buy them off. To, but the idea is that we can resources are managed by a conglomeration of individual choices. Uh, and that's important. Because then the free market and prices will deal with all of that. And the last thing I'll say is that the oldest division in, in political science, and the oldest artificial division, which you touched on as well, is the idea that there are these bad people out there who are greedy and selfish and exploitive and so on. But then, over here, in the government, you know, it's all these angels uh, who have no personal considerations and work solely for the good of everyone and so on. But it's no Hobbesian argument. If people are evil, then people in the government are going to be evil. If people are greedy and grasping and selfish, then the last thing you ever want to do is give them a monopoly of political power, because then it's like free evil, you know, pass, go, collect $200. So uh, you can only make the government the, the savior of the environment if you assume it's inhabited by the opposite of everyone else. But of course, if they're, if they're, evil, sorry, if they're good and everyone's evil and need a democracy, what do evil people do? Well, they're not going to vote good people to rule over them. <laughs> then that's silly, right? They're going to just try and gain control of this evil thing and so on. So, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, follow up on this gentleman's remarks and point out that there was another dimension that you would, all along those lines, it wasn't just master of nature or child of nature, but you made this point several times about nature at bay, which is a kind of armed truce in a way. So it's, a, it's a, there's an extra dimension to this. Yeah, I'll grow some sorry, let, let, let me just rephrase my nice question sort of that, that makes it very, uh, very clear here. Is my, my feeling is that most of the people who are buying into this environmentalist mantra are not doing it for nefarious reasons. They are doing it because they need religion. 
They need faith. I don't agree with you about the nefarious things. Like if I go around giving people advice on, on how to cure some disease, and I've not studied it, I am actually doing some harmful things. Now, I may, like I may say, well, I, I just I don't know. But then if you don't know, stop giving advice. So if people say, well, here's how resources in people's lives and capital should be allocated, study some damn economics. You know, don't go out there or just telling people how things, like Russell Brand was just on the, on the interview the other day. Uh, you know, it's completely mad. When, like, like what Murray Rothbody said, you know, not everyone has to be an expert in economics, but if you're not an expert <laughs> in economics, don't talk about economics. No, but you know, people think, but intent is who cares? I mean, you can't gauge that. You can gauge the effects, which is people are saying we should use force to achieve the sense while never having studied it. But the easy way to show intent is intent is very easy. You simply point, ask people whether they know about the free market, and if they say, you know, actually I don't, but tell me more, you know, then their intent is good. Right? But if they then say, oh, the free market is evil and this and that and the other, so voluntary interactions between two people expecting win-win negotiation is evil, explain that to me like I'm three. And if they then resist and reject, then, then their intentions are not good because they're actually rejecting knowledge that is important. Do you guys, any question? Can you talk a little bit about legitimate... I can't talk a little bit about anything. <laughs> okay, I'll try. I'll talk about legitimate environmental challenges like air pollution in Beijing, like Ontario. Air pollution in Beijing, I mean, they're, they're a dictatorship. So why should they, the government has all this control, so why is there a problem? Like, the, 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 problem, the free market was prevent, actively prevented by governments from dealing with the, the issue of air pollution. And Murray Rothbard's written about this, where he says, so in, in the 19th century, when the satanic males began belching out their you know, ugly smoke onto the, the farmer's orchards, the farmers were growing apples around London and all that because they wanted to give apples to the poor so the poor could be exploited. And... What happened was all of the, the smoke came out over these orchards and, you know, screwed up all the apples and couldn't sell them, right? So they took the, the mill owners, the, the factory owners, to court. And they said, look, it's common law. You've damaged my property with your smoke, so I need restitution. And that would have either moved the factories or they put scrubbers or whatever they would have done to, to deal with that. Or they would have paid the farmers to move further away. But that was being dealt with. Uh, unfortunately, the government courts looked at the tax base of the manufacturers versus the tax base of the farmers and like, hmm, I think we're getting a lot more money from you guys, so we're going to basically, they're just throughout common law. And this is a continual process. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about things like pollution, I mean, what about the pollution of like psychotropic drugs being thrown into kids, right? I mean, that's really pollution for, for kids. Exactly. And yet that's entirely yeah. beneficial to, to the state. There's an even better example from Ontario itself. Um, it's told by... Um, What's my friend in Guelph's name? The uh, Department of Agricultural Economics. Terrific libertarian. Anyway, he gives the example of the Sunbury area, where back in the late 19th century, a bunch of farmers sued uh, the smelting people for, you know, in effect, despoiling their property, which they certainly were doing. And the judge said, "Well, sorry, it's in the national interest yeah. that we have Social no property. Good. So screw you." In effect. Funny how the social good always accumulates yeah. to somebody's pocketbook in, in particular. In the individual rights known grata. That's what we have to fight. Well, the cod fishery, you know, 400 years, they were able to basically walk from their fishing boats over the cod to get back to shore. It was that plentiful. The government takes it over in the 80s, and within 10, 15 years, it's all gone. Because they set the quotas, and they wanted to set high quotas to get votes, and they then pushed aside. You know, there's this old basket argument that you, you cannot fundamentally mistake government for society. Because when government takes over something, whether it's taking care of the poor, educating the young, then people make this mistake. It's able if the government stops doing it, 
it won't get done, right? But, and, and so the people are very good at managing resources. If they're left free to do it, and if the consequences accrue to them, accrue to them personally, people are excellent at, at managing resources. But once the government steps in, you've got political considerations, vote-buying considerations, and uh, then uh, the, the method. I mean, I don't know, one, okay, one last fundamental. So if, if, if you print a lot of money, what happens? Well, you get a lot of inflation. And if you get a lot of inflation, you're really stimulating people's desire to spend more now rather than save. Because if you save, you lose money. It's like termites are attacking your dollar bills, right? So even things like government control of currency and the incentive to print money rather than raise taxes, uh, that it, it produces a huge amount of consumerism in society. What about the fact that roads are built for through deficit financing? How has that influenced our use of cars and use of, of, of oil and so on? If you look at the way that society is organized, it's so fundamentally organized along the lines and literally the, the highways built by the state that uh, I mean, resource consumption in a free market environment would be very tidily taken care of by, by price and demand. But right now, we just live in this weird situation where st demand is stimulated by hypercurrency uh, and, uh, and debt uh, and all of this stuff. So anyway, I think there's a lot that goes into destroying the environment that comes out of the state. I was going to point out an illustration of recent events in Australia. You had a, a government that had initiated carbon tax yeah. and the next election we got included out. Australia, the fine country, where you yes. get fined for not voting. And at the same time, your point about you know, environmentalists uh, not being able to afford what they really want. So there, there's been some free market activity where residential solar companies in Australia are installing solar panels free. Hmm. Okay? And what they, how they typically cost is uh, the resident has to uh, give them a portion of the energy that goes back into the grid. Right. Yeah. Okay, so what they're really doing is making people produce energy producers. Yeah. And I think if the environmentalists really want to get their, you know, get their message out there, um, you know, put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, uh, that that would probably be their best bet. Yeah, I mean, we we, we don't even know yeah. whether centrally generated electricity that goes out on 12 billion light years worth of electrical cables is even, I mean, why, why doesn't every house or at least every street have some little generator? I mean, we have no, but because governments took it over and built all this stuff, deficit finance, people are like, okay, well, I guess I'll go. That's not quite true. There are good technical reasons for a large generator. If the government hadn't produced that, then we don't know what technological considerations might have been to bear. Fuel cells, for, for example, do promise that possibility. Yeah. You have your, your little generator in your basement. It's perfectly quiet, and uh, every now and then you pour some more liquid hydrogen fluids at point on the generation. Um, in the actual history of the electrical system, they actually did do that because... You actually know the history of the electrical system? <laughs> do you say that when you when you sit down for a dinner party? You know? <laughs> hey, I know. <laughs> you want to sit here. Go ahead. What happened was, um, when Edison invented the light bulb, it was a DC-based system, so you go down there a low voltage. You can't transmit uh, low voltage high current over a long distance. So they literally have to build generators on every street. And the other, his competitor actually built an AC system. He could build a single large one. It was actually a free market solution. Is that interesting? Right. Because it was far more profitable for them to simply have Compare that on the other hand with wind towers. <laughs> yeah, speaking of bad for the birds, right? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the blades of death. <laughs>
Any other questions? Or? Sure. I wanted to echo this, the, the solar generation. Is, uh, the way that company works is they actually rent your roof from you. They'll give you like 100 bucks a month, and then they actually make all the profit off of the system. But you can do it here where you set up solar panels, sell it back to the grid. You can do that. Yeah, it's, it's a FIT program. It's yeah. feed-in tariff, and it's set up by the government. It's a 20-year program. So they make their money back on the system, make profit for 10 years at least, and then you're left over with the system at the end and whatever rent you get for it. Yes, sir. Yeah. I think some of the biggest issues are arguing with people about things that are already in place. Um, the fact that just about all the water in Canada is already a publicly owned resource. Okay. Uh, I live on the Holland River up north a little bit. And recently, they've been putting in uh, sewage plants down the river, just pumping sewage into the river. And reading uh, For a New Liberty, there's a whole section on alternative ways to deal with uh, sewage and how it hasn't been done because it's just free to dump it into the rivers. How yeah, they're unowned and therefore despoiled, right? No, exactly. People talk about the problem of the commons, like the government is not subject to the problem of the commons. Right? Yeah. And you have companies like Nestle for going to Aberfoyle and paying the government, or even getting free rights to drain the, the water out of the uh, aquifers. How do you get people to see that a lot of the problems that they're arguing with, that the problems they have with Nestle, say, kind of stem from the, the way that the water has been regulated in Canada? I think, I mean, those are, those are great questions, and I, I get sucked into the black hole of what would a free society deal with these, how would a free society deal with these problems, but I was trying to come back, and you listen to my show, you've heard this analogy before, if you were in the 17th or early 18th, or late 18th century, and you were arguing against slavery, you know, everybody and their dog would say, but without the slaves, we'd starve, and we'd have nothing to wear, because they picked the food and the cotton and the, you know, so without slaves, we'd all die. And if you said, no, 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 I know how it's going to work, man. Smoke some of this. It'll all make sense to you. Because what, the way it's going to work, you see, is in about 150 years, there'll be these giant robot machines with these giant wheels. And you know how they're going to be powered? With the crushed juice of 100-million-year-old trees. And, and they're going to go all the way through the crops. And there's not barely going to need to be anyone there. And they're going to put them in these big, giant squares. And then they're going to get shipped on these giant wheel of these flat tar like people would think that's completely insane. Of course, that's, you can't predict what's going to happen in the absence of compulsion. You do know that compulsion is wrong, and you know that uh, public is, is actually unowned and therefore despoiled, and it's a violation of property rights and of the non-aggression principle for the government to protect that which it has not homesteaded. And so you can make, I think, the moral case, and the consequences be damned. We can't possibly predict what the consequences of liberty are going to be. We just know it's the right thing to do. I think the analogy there would be people who thought this slave trade was solely perpetrated by profits and profit motives, and they don't recognize the legal structure of keeping the slave system intact. You, yeah, you can't have a slave system unless the government's going to go cash in for you, right? Because, I mean, they just walk off, and what are you going to do? Go hunt all your slaves, and they might as well hire them, right? But if, if you can socialize the cost of catching the slaves and bringing them back, like in Brazil, how did they get rid of slavery? The government just said, we aren't going to catch them anymore. Whoops! <laughs> you know, immediately, hey, I'll start giving you five bucks an hour to whatever, right? So. Is that it? All right. Thank you.